After a break of a number of weeks through the Christmas and New Year season, we return this morning to our studies in the Gospels. Before Christmas and New Year's, we were in the 17th chapter of John. We've been working our way through the prayer of Jesus in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. We called it, I think we called it the farewell prayer because we have a farewell discourse that precedes it in chapters 14 through chapter 16. And it's in the farewell discourse followed by the farewell prayer we see something of the heart of our Lord. The extensive love that he has towards these, his followers. These immediate followers, yes, but more than just these immediate followers, though they have a pivotal role to play in the planting of the gospel in the world and the planting of the church in the world. But he also embraces in his concern through his instruction and through his prayer all who would ultimately come to faith, all who would ultimately come to believe through the apostolic word. Now Jesus began this prayer of chapter 17 praying for himself, praying for his own glorification as the God-man, that he would return to heaven in a true humanity, having accomplished salvation for his people, that he would be glorified with the glory that the Son possessed with the Father before the Incarnation, before the world existed. But this was not self-centered narcissism, for his own glory, and others would see his glory, but rather that he would glorify his Father in his mission, that, the, that he says, glorify me, that the Son may glorify you. Let me get the exact words in chapter 17. He says, I glorified you in the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do in verse 4, and now, Father, glorify me with your own presence, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. And then back in verse uh, 1, he says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. His end is the glorification of his Father in the accomplishment of the mission that he had been given by the Father. And so the direction of the prayer was concern for the Father's glory, yes, but also his concern for those whom the Father had given him. That uh, the Son would glorify the Father in his mission to give eternal life to all that the Father had given him. So the prayer focuses upon the glory of his Father and the good of those whom he had been given, those who he came to redeem. So he moves from praying for himself in this way, seeking the glory of his Father, the good of his people, and then he moves to pray for the disciples themselves, those whom he had gathered in his public ministry, who had followed him, who were with him to the end. And he prays for them, their unity, their sanctity, their preservation in faith and faithfulness. I called it, I believe, solidarity, sanctity, and safety. Um, if you want to use those three S's to remember what, he, what he's praying for, that they would be um, in solidarity with one another, in unity with one another, sanctity, sanctify them through the truth, he says. Your word is truth. And then their safety, that they would be kept, that they would be preserved. 
Now, at verse, then at verse 20, he branches out from there. He begins with himself, prays for the immediate disciples who followed him. And then in verse 20, he branches out his prayer concern to all who would believe on him through their word. The word of the apostles. As the apostles carried out their work and carried out their mission, they, he, he, they are the ones who give us God's word. It's the apostolic community that gives us the, the New Testament, that gives us authoritative scripture. It's the church that's built upon the foundation of the apostles, as well as the prophets, the Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. We believe because of the apostolic word. We believe because of what they taught and preached. And Jesus prays for all who believe on him through the apostolic word which means he prayed for us before dying on the cross he prayed for you and me meeting here in Pinebush this morning when he prayed the words of John 17 he prays for the unity of all of his people in all ages and with a special focus on how that kind of unity would impact the world The world would know that the Father had sent the Son. That this divine heavenly love would be realized within God's people. The love that the Father had to the Son would be replicated in the relationship of God's people with one another. That connects in chapter 13 when he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have to one another. And that love producing unity would give the world the knowledge that we just don't do this because we're just good people. We don't love one another just because we're genetically coded to do this. No, we're not. Everything in us is self-absorbed and self-interested and self-centered. The fact that we would have a fellowship of love within the church of Jesus Christ is a work of divine grace. It's a work of divine grace because Christ has come. Revealing the Father. Bringing us into union, union with the Father through the blood of His cross. And as the love of God becomes real, incarnate in Jesus, it becomes real and incarnate in the body of Jesus in and among his people loving one another and so we've been brought into the orbit of a God given God centered saving love a saving love and grace that originated in the father's relationship to the son and from there spreads out to all who receive eternal life great prayer expansive prayer A prayer of depth. A prayer that we need to be answered. And we need to be praying these very things for ourselves. Now such a prayer as this finds a very fitting conclusion. As we come to the final words of the prayer. Those words that are found in verse 24 to 26. I want to read that final section to you that we'll look at this morning. Jesus prays in the words of verse 24. Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Our Lord concludes this prayer with final petitions. Final petitions that concern what I'm calling, number one, the ongoing demands of his people. Now when I use the word demands, I don't mean we stand before God as bradish children demanding, give me this, give me this, give me this. No, no. The demands are the things that we require. Like you, you, you know, we say we demand three square meals a day if we're going to survive. The, the demands are our needs, our necessities. So you might see ongoing needs of his people that he prays for. I use the word demands because the final thing I'm going to look at with you is the final thing that Jesus prays for is the ultimate destiny of his people. The ultimate destiny as well as the ongoing demands his people possess. Let me suggest first of all that Jesus prays for the ongoing demands, the urgent needs that could only be met by a God of faithfulness whose promises warrant Jesus pleading for these things as due to his people because God is what he calls God to be a righteous father. Verse 25, O righteous father. God is a righteous God. And as a righteous God, he faithfully fulfills his purposes, his promises, his commitments to his people. Now part of what righteousness is, is a Hebrew concept from the Old Testament, is its, its conformity to a norm. It's the right thing to do because it's the right thing that's demanded that becomes righteousness. And when God enters into relationships with his people and offers them himself and his promises, righteousness means that God will ever conform to those promises. He won't vary. He'll fulfill the words of his, of, 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 of his lips towards his people. And Jesus is confident that his God, his Father, is a righteous Father. And this righteous Father will not leave his people without their necessities, without the things they find themselves so desperately in need of. Now Jesus makes it clear that there is a distinction between these for whom he prays and the world. He said earlier, I pray not for the world, but I pray for those whom you have given me out of the world. He again reflects upon that in the words of verse 25 when he says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, even though the world does not know you, Jesus makes a distinction between the world that does not know God the world that lies in the evil one, the world that's in sin, the world that's under divine judgment because of their unbelief and because of their rebellion, the world that lives in blithe ignorance and indifference to who God is, to what God has said. They know not God. They believe not the gospel. And in contrast to the world, Jesus says, I know you. I know you. The world does not know you, but I know you. 
Because I know you, I've been able to give the knowledge of you to those whom you've given me. These know. No, they don't know everything about me, but one thing they know, they know that you sent me. They know that you have sent me. You see it in verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that I've sent you. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. These know that you have sent me. These know that the Father has sent the Son. That's an emphasis we've seen before. That the disciples knew where Jesus had come from. He'd come from God. There's no question about that. But they were stumbling on at this point was where he's going. He's, where's, where are you going? You're leaving us. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus is looking to allay their fears. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Where I'm going, it's good for you that I go. Because if I go not, uh, the Spirit will not be sent. It's good for you. He gives them all reasons to believe that his departure from them is a good departure. And it's not until he dies and rises from the dead and sends the Spirit to these men that they really come to understand some things about the Gospel they had never understood before. So the point of their knowledge that Jesus gives is that there's a difference between the ignorance of the world, the knowledge of Jesus, and the knowledge of the people of Jesus. On the one hand, the knowledge of the world is a blindness. It's an indifference. It's no knowledge. With Jesus, it's complete knowledge. It's full knowledge. It's comprehensive knowledge. It's expansive knowledge. There's nothing he does not know about his Father. But with you and me, it's partial knowledge. We know in part. We understand in part. We don't have full knowledge at all. I mentioned in Sunday school that I once thought of, when I was about 30 years in the ministry, of preaching a sermon upon what I learned in the last 30 years. I'm glad I didn't preach on it because I've learned a lot more since in the last 10 years and if I have another 30 years whatever I say today won't be adequate because again my knowledge my understanding of ministry and the word and is so paltry <laughs> I mean there's so much more I don't know than what I do know I mean how much I've learned through the years how much you've learned through the years there's still so much more you do not know than what you know now the good thing is what we know is good what we know is saving. We have a saving knowledge. We have a knowledge that's brought us into a true knowledge, but yet it's incomplete. It's partial. Thankfully, it's growing. Thankfully, it's expanding. But yet there's great need to know more, to experience more, to receive more. And so the great need for these disciples and for those that follow them into the life of Christian discipleship is exactly what Jesus is praying for here. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, no knowledge there, I know you, full knowledge here. These know, partially, (laughs) you sent me, for I've made known to them your name, and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's the great need we have, folks, is that the love with which the Father loved the Son would be in us, and that Jesus would dwell in us. Though he's going away, though he's going to the Father, though he's departing from them, he still says that I may be in them. 
That's not a complete abandonment, is it? He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. He said that in chapter 14. He says, you will pray the Father that he would give you another paraclete, another comforter, even the spirit of, the tr- of, the, of truth that the world cannot receive. But you'll receive him because he's, he's with you and will be in you. And with the spirit of Jesus coming to these disciples, Christ would be in them. The ongoing demand is simply that in the light of our incomplete, our partial understanding and knowledge that we have of God, that we would know more because Christ is in us. And Christ being in us will know something of the love of God that passes all understanding, the peace of God that passes all understanding, the blessings of God that are infinite in their nature. Paul prays a prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. He says he bows the knee to the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you to be strengthened with his spirit in the inner mind, in the inner man. I'm sorry, let me get the exact reading. It's in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Yeah, that you be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Jesus prays that I would be in them. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So the Spirit of Jesus comes to bring Jesus to us. To bring Jesus in us. I know properly. He's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He ascended into glory to be with his Father. But he does not abandon us. He gives us his spirit so that he may dwell in our hearts through faith. What's the result of that? It's so that you, being rooted and grounded in love. See, interesting. Christ's presence in our hearts does not so much mediate greater knowledge and greater wisdom and greater understanding those are the things as reformed Christians we put a premium on we want to know we want to have exact truth and true doctrine be able to make all the differences between this thing, that thing and the next thing and carefully divide the word of God's truth but the premium that the spirit of God seems to place upon the whole matter of the indwelling Jesus is that we would abound in love that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith so that we being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge what surpasses knowledge? the love of Christ Knowing the love of Christ. That's the greatest knowledge of all. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Old Testament has a counterpart to this. Where Jeremiah, the Lord says through Jeremiah, "Let, Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the man of power glory in his strength. And the man of nobility glory in his nobility. But let him that glories glory in this. That he knows me. The living and the true God. It's a knowledge of a personal God. It's a personal knowledge of that personal God. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's Christ in us, mediating to us the knowledge that's essential 
the knowledge of his love, the knowledge of his grace, the knowledge of his liberating power, the knowledge of so great a salvation. I think the point of it is, folks, is that Jesus desires to be in us. Isn't that amazing? He desires to be in us. He desires to mediate God's love to us. In spite of everything we don't know. In spite of everything we'll never know. At least in this life. We know the essential thing. We've been loved. And we are loved. Let's think of the hymn this morning. Loved by everlasting love. Led by grace that love to know. Spirit breathing from above. Thou hast taught me. It is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. So this transport all divine. In a love that cannot cease, I am his, and he is mine. You see, to be brought out of the ignorance and the indifference of this present evil age, and to be given by God a true knowledge of himself, though impartial, though incomplete, is yet fully satisfying. And fully soul ignobling and fully soul expanding. That we, we have Christ in us. Mediating God's love to our souls. Our Lord desires and delights to be in us by his spirit. Testifying of the greatness of the love with which he has loved us. Showing the love of the Father to the Son. The love of the Trinity and the persons of the Trinity to one another. He makes known that love to us. That's the demand we have as God's people. That's the demand that Jesus prays for. Oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you completely, fully. These know you've sent me. I've made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. What's better than Christ being in us? Interestingly enough, there's something greater even than that. And that's us being with Christ. Isn't that that amazing, mind-blowing? Christ desires to be in us and he prays in the light of that desire to be in them. But then he also prays that we would be with him. And that's back to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Not only I and them by the Spirit, testifying and mediating the love of God to them, but that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, everything we know now, we know in part. Everything we know now is by way of a down payment of a future inheritance. God gives us a down payment. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And Paul calls that a down payment of the future inheritance been sealed with the spirit of promise. Look at it, it's in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just quoting what Paul says in Ephesians 1. 
When Paul says in verse 3 that in him that is in union with Jesus, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, it's Ephesians 1.13, and believed in him, as believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We've got God's mark of authenticity. Remember the good housekeeping seal of approval? United Laboratories seal that says this has been tested and it's good and it's, it can be used. Well, God puts his own seal upon us, his own seal of approval, his own, his own mark that we are genuine, we're real, we're his, we've been tested, we belong to him. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, God's mark of authenticity. It's God's mark of ownership, God's mark that we belong to him. And the Holy Spirit who comes as the seal is also the one who comes as the guarantee. Or that word is actually a word that means earnest or down payment. You know, the earnest money that you give in the sale of a house that is a guarantee that the rest of the payment is to be made. Well, God gives an earnest of the future inheritance. He gives the down payment, the guarantee that the rest is still is going to come. The rest is going to be given. We have it's a part of our future inheritance now. And again, that guarantee, that earnest, that down payment of our future inheritance is the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. So the point of it is anything and everything. We know of the reality of God's grace and presence and love and salvation through the Spirit being given to us, mediating Christ and His love to us now is but a paltry little bit of nothing compared to what's coming. It's not a little bit of nothing. It's really a little bit of everything. It's a little bit of everything that points to and marks something so much greater than anything we'll ever know now. In comparison, it's paltry. comparison, it's small to the full, final reception of the inheritance. Paul can speak, Peter can speak of receiving an inheritance undefiled, incorruptible, reserved in heaven for us. And that heavenly inheritance we will know. And Jesus prays we would be given it. I desire that. It's not just I ask, but I desire. Jesus is speaking about his heart's desire. He's speaking about the things he wants to the depth of his own soul. I want, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me. Not just that I would be with them by the Spirit, but that they would be with me in my glory. To see my glory that you've given me. Because you've loved me from the foundation of the world. The Jesus who delights and desires to be in us, desires and delights us to be with him. That we would be with him where he is. Now this prayer could include what we often call the beatific vision. That's the thing that happens when believers die. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be present with the Lord in a non-bodily experience of His presence and love after death. Where there is that non-material part of us that really is the true us. 
will be in the presence of Jesus. But that true us is always to be seen as integrally related to this body that we live in and inhabit. And so the Christian faith doesn't speak of just this soulish existence with God in heaven. It speaks of a resurrection of the body. And so the resurrection of the body, there's the unity of body and soul that meets with God. As God comes in the coming of Jesus again to restore the earth to its original design. To bring in what's called a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I believe it's this ultimate desire of our meeting together with Jesus and that glorified existence that really expresses the ultimate desire of our Lord for his own. He's not just praying for individual Christians. He's praying for the church. He's praying for all who believed in him. He's praying for that ultimate end of all things, that ultimate restoration of all things in a place where the book of Revelation pictures it as a place in which Jesus becomes the sun and the moon and the stars. Oh, the source of light is bound in him. No need for a sun in that place. Not to say that God obliterates the sun from existence, no. But there's just no need of it. Jesus is the light of the place. There's no need for any architectural temple like you had in the days of Solomon. There's no need for some building. Jesus is the temple. He's the presence of God in that place. And it's in that ultimate place, in that ultimate hour of Christ's return, and the church being gathered together with Him, that the church will behold the glory of the Christ they've loved, the Christ they've served. And they will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. I think it's this that Jesus has in mind. It's that final glory of the church in its glory in the presence of Christ it will be in the final day and will last throughout the endless ages when we've been there 10,000 years right shining as the sun imagine that 10,000 years we sing that actually we sing that and you know we sing that intelligently we sing that meaningfully that there is to be the endless ages of our, our sojourn with God what we've known in this life is just a small little bit of time what we know in that day will be endless existence. What we know in this time is a little bit of love and portions of knowledge will be fullness of knowledge, fullness of love, abounding in the grace that the perfection of glory will bring to us in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, I don't know if I said it before, but I'll say it again. This, this final prayer, in all of its amazing breadth of, of Jesus' desire to be in us, his desire to have his church to be with him in glory, and we will behold his glory, the glory that he had with the Father from the foundation of the world. What a wonderful conclusion to a prayer. What a wonderful conclusion to this whole section we've been studying in John for so many months. It highlights the ministry of comfort that Jesus gives to his heart-weary, distressed disciples. Let not your heart be troubled. Their hearts were troubled. They're distressed. They need comfort. 
And the comfort they need is a comfort that will arise out of the constancy of their relationship with God in Christ. The loving relationship of the triune God towards his people. And the way that this relationship is expressed to us in this passage, it breeds of intimacy at every single point. He wants to be in us and have us with him. Because it's expressed to us in terms of the relationship of family. Remember back in chapter 13 when Jesus called these disciples my beloved children. We don't even think of you know, Jesus the father of, a, of, of his children. But yet there is an aspect to that where Jesus is called the, the everlasting father in the book of Isaiah. The children whom God has given me is what Isaiah says about his kids the writer of Hebrews says is true of Jesus and his children that he sees his seed he prolongs his day the pleasure of the Lord prospers in his hands Jesus comes to bring many sons to glory children related to God not as distant strangers not merely as servants going through the servants quarters not as nearly as slaves, but children with all of the warmth, with all of the love, with all of the sense of nearness and closeness and intimacy that that picture describes. That's how Jesus relates to us. He wants us to see that a saving relationship to him is a saving relationship in which we're brought into the banqueting house of his love. The banner over us is love. Then it's also spoken of not only as family, but also friendship. Friendship. He says, I call you no longer slaves or servants. A servant doesn't know what his master's doing. He says, I call you friends. I call you friends. And then it's a relationship of fellowship, of communion. We've been brought into the fellowship of God's Son. we brought not to be at a distance, but again to draw near, to know the presence of this God, to be with us and us with Him. It's the picture of communion. With the book of Revelation speaks of it, that he's of, of the one who stands at the door and knocks. And he says, if anyone opens, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Again, that's the, again, the picture of family, but it's also the picture of fellowship. Table fellowship. Dining in the presence of Jesus. Sharing our relationship with Jesus. And that's something that is a promise for this life. And it's a promise also for the age which is to come. How do you see your relationship with God? And with this I'll conclude. Do you see your relationship with God just in terms of being a servant in the household or the servant in a kingdom Jesus gives you a bunch of rules to keep and you do your best to obey it and if not you just feel utterly cut off from the love of the king cast off distant formal, technical that's not the relationship scripture admits us to it's a personal, loving relationship That we'll not be content with distance. We'll not be content with just 
external conformity to the set of rituals and rules that God sets out to us. The rules and rituals are important, but through those rules and rituals we come to Him. We go through the same rituals most Lord's Day. We open with a song, we have a prayer. We go through the same thing with some degree of regularity. But it's through those rituals we should not be happy with just meeting in the presence of one another with no present God. With no nearness of His grace. With no sense of His closeness and the sense of His love. He's a heavenly being, yes. But He's our Father in heaven. He sits in upon a throne of majesty and glory, yes. But it's also called the throne of grace, in which he invites us to draw near. Whatever you want to say about God in terms of sovereignty and majesty and transcendence and all of the omni-attributes, there's every aspect of those things that always brings us to consider his commitment to us personally to draw near. There's omnipresence, yes, but there's also special presence. There's omnipotence, omnipotence, but there's also dwelling in us by the power of his spirit to enable us to be more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's omniscience, yes, that he alone possesses. Yet there's a spirit of wisdom and revelation and a knowledge of him that Paul prays the Ephesians would know so that a real true knowledge of God is received. We know him, not just about him, but we know him in a relationship of love, in a family, in a friendship, in a fellowship that the love of God brings. May God be pleased to give us understanding in this prayer of Jesus and his desire. And he goes from asking to desiring. And what does he desire? Amazing things. That he would be in us and that we would be with him. May we be content with nothing less. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the words of our Lord Jesus in this prayer. We're thankful for what it reveals about his heart of love to his own. And Lord God, we confess we live well beneath the privileges we possess as your people. We tend to be content with the crumbs that fall from the master's table when we're called to have full fellowship with our master at his table eating all of the fullness of the delights and the joys and the provision that he provides. Forgive us for thinking so lowly of you and meagerly of you and often having hard thoughts of you when your love is so made manifest in your Son and even in the prayer that we've looked at this morning. So here are prayers to bring us into a deeper measure of appreciation of the blessings we have in Jesus Christ as those who are made to be part of a family embraced in a friendship enjoying the fullness of fellowship 
with the God who has loved us and declared that love time without number in all that you've done for us in Christ and all that you've promised us in Christ and all that you've planned for us in Christ and all that the present reality and future hope will bring. So we ask you to hear us, receive our praises as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.